Ohio State University president is stepping down just after two and a half years following her arrival. Sounds like she was asked to, if we're reading published reports right. We'll be talking about that tomorrow on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston, and we got a whole bunch of other stories to talk about today. Let's get to it. When should we expect to see a question about total legalization of marijuana in Ohio on the ballot? And in the interim, is the legislature going to make it a lot easier for just about anyone to use it anyway? Lisa. Yeah, there's a couple of things going on in this front. The Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol says that they think they are they're aiming for November 2023 to put recreational marijuana on the ballot. This is according to their attorney, Tom Heron. He says that uh, they it will be taken up by the legislature in January as mandated by an out-of-court settlement that was over deadlines and timing of the process that kept it off this November ballot. Remember, it was supposed to be on the ballot this November, but there were some technicalities over the timing and the process. So this is an initiated statute. So the legislature has four months to act, but signaling that they probably won't. So this would go back to petitioners in May. They would have to collect 130,000 signatures or so by early July. Heron says they expect that they can do that. Um, they're getting their staff ready and geared up to, for this. And the ballot initiative would create a division of cannabis control that would regulate marijuana. It would be me- recreational marijuana. 21 and over only can use recreational marijuana. There's a 10% tax on sales. The revenues would go to local communities with pot businesses. Also a social equity fund for communities impacted by the war on drugs and also substance abuse and addiction programs. But there's a Senate bill right now that could be acted on in this lame duck session, um, Senate Bill 261, that would allow any condition that could possibly benefit by medicinal marijuana they can be prescribed marijuana. This is beyond the current 22 approved conditions for medicinal pot. And it would increase the number of dispensaries from the current 55. They're looking to license at least 70 more with the Board of Pharmacy. And then pot would be put under a new division of marijuana control that would be within the Ohio Commerce uh, Department. So if I- Oh, and- Go ahead. So if I felt if I just felt lousy, you know, felt the cold coming on, I could say I want some medical marijuana to make me feel better. That's what it sounds like. You know, although they didn't say about doctors, you know, because doctors have to have be certified to prescribe medicinal marijuana. There was no mention of that. So I would assume that. Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, it sounds oh, like it will be to, up to the discretion of the, the doctor who's evaluating uh, your case. Right, exactly. Exactly. And like I said, I don't know if it can be your regular provider or whether it's a marijuana certified provider. But also, too, this is an interesting thing. Uh, this new bill in the Senate would raise the permissible levels of THC from 70% to 90%. If they're going to go down that road, I don't know why they just don't legalize exactly, it at that point. Right. Because There'll be doctors right. out there that specialize in in prescribing marijuana. So if you feel cold coming on, you call them up. They'll say, come on in. Oh, yeah, you get it. And you go and get your piece of paper and you buy it. Well, that's a charade almost at that point. So why not just say, oh, we'll legalize it? I mean, it's a, it's an interesting one. Or maybe they think by doing this, they'll reduce the the number of people that vote for total legalization. 
Well, and there was some talk about, you know, the these technicalities that kicked this initiative off, off of the November ballot was because they didn't want Democrats coming out to vote for that. Well, that's true. And then they put on those two issues that were needless to rally the, the Republican. And it worked. They had a lot of voters. It's today in Ohio. What can we expect to see from the opening days of the lame duck session in the Ohio legislature? Laura, this kicks off today, right? Well, didn't we have it last week or the week before? It's like a blur to me, but the election end was November 8th, and I feel like we've seen a flurry already. So, but yeah, they, they've got, um, but I guess they're set to return, so we've just been talking about it that this, this right. whole time. Yeah, so, I think they're back today. You're right. They are back today. So any legislation that doesn't cross the finish line by the year's end must restart this process when the new term begins next year. So think about it. It's been a two-year process. They've got a bunch of stuff they want to tie up the loose ends. We've been talking about what they want to do with abortion. Um, There's a lot of other stuff, though, like decriminalizing fentanyl testing strips. So obviously we have um, an opioid epidemic in this state, and there are overdoses a lot of times related to fentanyl. So there's a way that you can test to see if your drugs have fentanyl in them. That's technically illegal, even though a lot of health departments around the state offer these testing strips. So this would decriminalize that. A couple other things, um, a new felony offense for swatting, that's calling false emergency 911 calls just to you know trigger an emergency response. If someone gets hurt, that could be a felony. And then, um, yeah, there's more stuff about voting access, uh, making it harder to vote early, actually. And crimes for rioters, Related to the, you know, the protests after the George Floyd death. Yeah, where they're not allowed, nobody's allowed to close a gun shop. The voting law is probably the most bogus thing on the map because all of Ohio's Republicans have boasted about the the safety and security of Ohio's elections to all across the, you know, Ohio had completely safe and workable elections. So if that's the case, why do you need to change it? I mean, they're making drastic changes, all of which will reduce the vote. And let's remember Bill Seitz is behind this and he's does everything for completely partisan reasons. There's no need to pass that. There's certainly no need to pass it in the lame duck legislature and they're going to do it to try and make it harder to get democratic votes. It's just, but just just to clarify, though, Chris, there are some things in there that are actually positive. Not many. They took it out. But oh, they did. Yeah, take them the out. latest version removes expansions of the voting access that those were in the earlier oh. versions, like curbside voting, creating an automatic voter registration program. Those are gone. And what remains? And remember, this lay dormant for nearly a year and they just resurrected it. So it would limit the drop boxes to one per county, establish a new photo ID requirement, eliminate the early voting the day before Election Day and shorten the time period you can request an absentee ballot. Yeah, there is, I think there is, though, Lisa, there is one element, and I can't remember what it is, that was a good one of all, of all of them. There was one, but that I don't think has been removed. I just can't recall what it is. The The Dropbox issue w- was very specific to the pandemic years, that there was a lot of fear mm-hmm. by people of going into the elections office, and that's why people were fighting to have more drop boxes that to say that can only be one well, also there were so many mail problems right everybody was afraid their right. ballots would get lost so so that was like a one-time issue they probably don't need to legislate it now because the need for it's not there but if ever the need arose again 
we should have a discussion, but they'll have this prohibition. And it's a bad law. They shouldn't pass it. The swatting law, they don't need it. it it's the, if you do that, if you call in SWAT to, uh, to someplace and somebody gets hurt, they're able to charge you with a felony now. But it, this is one of those feel good red meat for the Republicans kind of thing. We're going to take care of these people, uh, even though it's covered by existing laws. It's today in Ohio. Metro Health's former CEO, Akram Boutros, sued the hospital system and its trustees on Monday. What does he accuse them of and what does he seek, Layla? Well, in a nutshell, Boutros is, is accusing the hospital of violating Ohio's open meetings law by improperly discussing and making decisions on important matters in executive session rather than in public view. And specifically, he says the board failed to engage in public discussion or pass a resolution approving the hiring of consultants to help with the search to find Boutros's replacement as, as MetroHealth CEO. And also, he claims the board violated Ohio's open meetings law by allowing an investigation of Boutros without proper authorization and by firing Boutros without the mandatory public notice and deliberation. So this lawsuit says that the trustees can use executive session to keep the public out of their discussions, but only under very strict guidelines, and that the board failed to adhere to the publicly stated purpose of their executive sessions when they discuss these important subjects behind closed doors. The lawsuit also accuses the board of firing Boutros in retaliation for calling them out for violating the open meetings law. And he's claiming that the board's actions should nullify his dismissal. But, you know, board chair Vanessa Whiting came out pretty strong in her response to all of this. She says that the board is disappointed but not surprised by the lawsuit. And she called his claims, you know, a mere distraction from the fact that he awarded himself nearly $2 million in bonuses without proper review or authorization and that he hid that from the board and the public. She said, you know, no one should lose sight of the irony that someone who for five years actively cloaked his actions is trying now to recast himself as a champion of sunshine. Zing. Yeah, yeah, it was a zing. Uh, I, I, I am a little bit surprised that this lawsuit is in because all the facts aren't known. We're going to get a bunch of attachments to that investigation today. You'd think his lawyer would want everything in hand before they filed it. It is odd that he's attacking the sunshine violation when there is a pretty clear exemption in the law for talking about serious personnel matters. And, you know, maybe it, there's some technical violation where they didn't call it properly, but they're allowed to talk about these matters behind closed doors. We're the big sunshine people, but this has been in the law for mm -hmm. a long time. What what strikes me about this is this is almost like Akram going to the mattresses. Yep. Right. And, and, and really, you know, I'm going to take these guys on, but nobody's coming at him with firearms. If they come at him, it's going to be with subpoenas and indictments. And in that case, what you should be is in a room talking to your lawyers and not talking publicly. Everything in this lawsuit now becomes part of any case against him. And the, the weirdest thing is he's trying to use the sunshine violation he alleges to erase the investigation to erase the report that was done by John McCaffrey, the, the respected lawyer. And, you know, that investigation is probably sitting on a federal prosecutor's mm -hmm. desk or the county prosecutor's desk or at the ethics commission. And it's all based on facts. So even if he somehow were successful in erasing the Metro Health Board's decisions, 
the, the, the evidence is on the table. And, and that's the more important thing. Did he take 400000 a year out of Metro Health for five years without anybody knowing it and without approval by the board? Right. That's what this case comes down to. And McCaffrey made a very strong case that this is theft in office. So I'm just stunned at how he's coming out firing in all directions when the long game is you know, you go in with your lawyers. I guarantee you the, the, the best defense lawyers in town are watching this and wondering what they're thinking because you're not supposed to talk like this. Yeah, right, right, right. But, you know, we talked about this yesterday. I feel like, you know, when someone just kind of lawyers up and hunkers down and does what, you know, what what the logical thing is to do in this situation, it, it does like cast a... a uh, um, a shadow of, of guilt upon that. But th- in this case, the optics are someone who's who's innocent of these uh, these allegations would not behave this, you know, or would would behave this way, would come out swinging, would would throw all the, um, you know, would, would file the lawsuit, would would come right back at the board. And so I think that is the strategy here is to appear. But- that, you know, if you were guilty, you wouldn't do this stuff. You wouldn't be so vocally, you know, fighting it. Well, except he paid the money back right away, which is a lot of people have interpreted as a sign of of guilt. And two words, Tony Viola. You know, Tony Viola was charged in the, in the big uh, housing scam that was part of the Great Recession. And he screamed and yelled from the highest mountaintops the whole time trying to win over public opinion. But the wheels of justice don't pay attention to public opinion and they grind you down. And so so if Akram Boutros is trying to win the word of public opinion, OK, but that's not going to stop the criminal investigation, which could threaten his liberty. And smart, smart lawyers usually say, stop talking. Be quiet. This is a long game. You're going to have to suffer some indignities if you're truly innocent, but ultimately you'll prevail. But talking now just feeds the prosecution and investigation. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit of a surprise. I agree. I agree. It is. This whole thing has been one surprise after another. (laughs) Stunner. And and again, I I repeat, there's a whole bunch of information that's going to come out this week. And to file that lawsuit without the benefit of seeing it is risky. And I, I just, it was surprising that they rushed into court with it because there's, there's nothing imminent, right? I mean, he's already lost his job. If he gets it back, they'll have to give him back pay. So there's nothing that you're trying to, to stop immediately. Why not collect all the facts before you fly in? Unless this is really just about swaying. Right. And opinion. creating the distraction, so. as, as Whiting said, I mean, I think, uh, even, even if he were to prevail on, in his argument that they were, um, that they were violating the open meetings law, it doesn't erase the bad thing, you know? Right, right. That's There, there is very like. Look, McCaffrey laid out the case for criminal investigation. So there's very likely a criminal investigation. We'll have to do a subpoena uh, record search at Metro Health to see if they got a subpoena from any criminal justice agency. It's Today in Ohio. This is the season when nonprofit agencies collect the large majority of their donations. Today is Giving Tuesday, as anybody with an email box knows, because the requests are flooding in. Good time to discuss this next story. In the first year of the pandemic, how many of Greater Cleveland's nonprofits raised more than $15 million? Laura? 
A whole lot. There's actually a hundred of uh, on this list, which I did not expect to see, and um, of the and that's of more than twenty nine hundred non nonprofits in Greater Cleveland. So, fifteen million dollars in revenue is a lot. That's from the latest federal tax documents. Four organizations reported over a billion dollars in revenue during the first year of the pandemic, and that is led by the Cleveland Clinic with twelve point three billion dollars. There was one, I think it was number three or four, that's based in Hudson that I'd not heard of. Do you know anything about that one? I don't know about that one. There were a whole lot of ones that you would you know, expect on there. A lot of higher education, a lot of hospitals, a lot of museums. Like Oberlin is number 10. John Carroll was 11. The Rock Hall was number 28. The food banks on there. The thing is, it doesn't represent just cash donations. This is anything you're giving. So the food bank is going to include all of the food donations as well. But you're right. They're, they weren't all based in Cleveland, although the bulk of them were. There was a whole bunch in Shaker Heights, which I had not expected to see. Um, seven in Shaker, 12 in Akron, four in Lorraine, four in Hudson out of that top hundred. But yeah, yeah, are you talking about the American Endowment Foundation? Yeah, I'd never heard of it. And it was it was in the top five. And I'm just looking at it thinking, yeah, I mean, we've all heard of the Cleveland Foundation. We've all heard of the Gunn Foundation, Morton Mandel Foundation. I mean, these are all big names we've always heard of. What's this one? What does it do? I mean, I I, I think there's a it's follow-up story. It's an independent donor-advised fund. Doesn't that tell you right, everything you what? need to know? I don't... <laughs> Yeah, right. I, 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 it, it created in my mind. We have a story to do. Uh, it's an interesting story. It's on Cleveland.com. Check it out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland okay. Public Power planning to raise rates. How competitive can it be with higher prices when it's going up against First Energy? Is this related to getting blocked on collecting an environmental fee? Layla, a lot to chew on yeah, here. It's, it's probably highly likely that we will see rate hikes at CPP, Cleveland Water, Cleveland Water Pollution Control. That definitely seems the direction we're headed. City Council on Monday passed legislation authorizing the city to hire a consultant to provide detailed five-year financial plans for all three of those utilities, and that should include rate and fee studies. Unlike the water department, which raises rates pretty regularly, I'd say, CPP hasn't seen a rate increase since 1983. Now, you know, at first blush, you might think that sounds like a utility that is very well managed and living within its means. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that CPP hasn't needed a rate increase in decades because for most of that time, the commissioner had been using a hidden charge called the environmental and ecological adjustment to plug all the budget gaps. From month to month, the commissioner would just figure out how big CPP's shortfall was, and he'd make up a number for that eco adjustment and just plug that right in there. And that way, CPP could make it appear that they never had to raise rates on their customers. But meanwhile, on some bills, the ecological adjustment exceeded the base rate. So this whole thing is subject of an incredibly messy class action lawsuit that's been tied up in the court for ages. Yeah, which we had a really decent mm -hmm. story about over the weekend. Courtney Astolfi found that they've done a maneuver that yes. pretended to be this altruistic move yeah. to help ratepayers 
be able to complain, but it was really just a legal maneuver to try and dismiss the suit. Yes, right? the mo- this is the most recent development in the case. It was this sneaky tactic the city pulled to try to gain control of the case. This this part of the story begins back in in 2020. Back then, I had I had written a column pointing out that CPP had been unconstitutionally depriving ratepayers of a means to challenge their bills or utility disconnections. They were required by law to create this panel to hear those cases, and they had never done that. And they pledged to do it, but then the pandemic happened and they threw it on the back burner like everything else. Well, you know, out of the blue this summer, Mayor Justin Bibb sends his utility administrators to city council with a proposed ordinance that claims to finally be righting that wrong and creating this arbitration panel to hear those challenges. It sounded great. We heralded it as the step in the right direction and a victory for the people and the blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what those tricksters did? They slipped in a clause that made the ordinance retroactive, which didn't really make a lot of sense until they showed up in court on the CPP class action lawsuit and tried to make the argument that the proper venue for that $200 million case was the city's arbitration panel, not Common Pleas Court. And the judge rejected that, and the city is appealing that judgment, which is just prolonging the case even more. It was supposed to go to trial at the end of October. So that's where we're, we are with that. And I got a very nice note from a reader thanking Courtney for doing that story. They said, we so appreciate Cleveland.com and the plane dealer being the watchdog. So good, good stuff. It's today in Ohio. Lisa, you're up. Why have two professors sued Cuyahoga County Community College on allegations of retaliation? And we should point out this is a Sabod Chandra lawsuit. He loves to sue yes. public institutions. Yeah, this lawsuit was filed yesterday. Um, The plaintiffs are Professors Linda Lanier and Diane Gaston at Tri-C. They claimed retaliation for comments they made to WOIO Channel 19 in a May 2021 story. They told the reporter in that story that the decision to offer fewer in-person classes at Tri-C's downtown campus than in the suburbs harmed black and minority students, especially during COVID-19. You know, these students were less likely to have computers and reliable internet. They say they spoke to Tri-C President Alex Johnson several times about this. Um, He is a defendant along with six other uh, deans and executives at Tri-C. So there are 10 claims in this lawsuit. They have First Amendment violations. They said they were disciplined for talking to the media, illegal retaliation, race and gender discrimination, because these are both black women professors. Um, they They say that they were removed from committees. Their request for PTO and and family leave were delayed. They were actually suspended for three days without pay, but later on that was rescinded and they were awarded their back pay. And they say that President Johnson held a town hall where he called their concerns unsubstantiated and denied that it was going on, and then they had no more comment. Well, suppose Chandra, the former city law director for Cleveland, has a record of winning in these kinds of lawsuits. So it'll be interesting to see whether this gets settled out or if there's a vigorous defense trying to prove it wrong. Well, it's interesting, though. Why would they cut it at the downtown campus and not at the suburban? I mean, that's a big question that needs to be answered, I think. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. It's today in Ohio. What odd record do federal prosecutors in the Cleveland district have for the first six months of 2022? And do we have any idea of why is there a massive corruption probe underway that we don't know about? Lisa, you obviously can't answer that last question because if we didn't know about it, you couldn't say one exists. But what's going on? 
Yeah, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Northern Ohio issued 55 search warrants, subpoenas, and grand jury summonses in the first half of this year. That's the highest of all the 94 U.S. federal districts. This comes from a report by Syracuse University's Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse. They actually had to sue the Department of Justice to access federal prosecutors' database. So Cleveland State University law professor Jonathan Whitmer Rich says the number is surprising. But he says, you know, one case can generate several search warrants. You know, you can have a search warrant for a car, for a laptop, for a phone. So, you know, obviously they can't give us any details, but they say, you know, these could be just the result of a small number of cases with a lot of search warrants and other things. So uh, the the closest one to us was uh, Miami filed 48 grand jury summonses, subpoenas, so forth in the first half of this year. So they're a distant second. Uh, The whole state of Nevada filed 37. And then nationally, there were 883 summonses, subpoenas, and search warrants issued. So here in Northern Ohio, 19 of these are from the FBI. 31 are from other agencies, including ATF and the DEA. And then there are five from outside agencies. I got to say, as the leader of the only watchdog newsroom in Cleveland, this makes me really nervous about what we're missing. You know, the feds learned in the Demora Russo County corruption investigation that if you serve anything on a government, we find out about it, your investigation becomes public. And so maybe they're not serving them there. I We've got everybody sniffing around. Is there something going on we don't know about? Uh, I, I mean, I just that's it's staggering to me that they're number one. And that's more than New York and it's more than Chicago and it's more than L.A. and Miami. Like you said, there's something fishy about this. What don't we know? I know. And we did. They did give us a few facts. So there were some that, you know, because most of these are filed under seal anyway, but apparently some were in uh, in conjunction to a raid at a downtown Cleveland apartment where 22 weapons were seized. The FBI had several subpoenas uh, regarding former councilman Bashir Jones. And then the DEA had a couple for an Akron drug raid that uh, coughed up like 1.4 pounds of fentanyl and cocaine. I ran some traps yesterday, but I didn't come up with anything. So we'll have to see if something (laughs) bubbles up. It's Today in Ohio. Dave Yost is suing another company for causing big losses to state pension systems. Which big business is he going after this time, Laura? Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, I think that the capital letter newsletter had a really funny blurb about this yesterday. It was like, that's law, folks, instead of that's all, folks. Anyway, Anyway, Yost is claiming two pension systems lost more than $25 million because the executives withheld adverse information about the merger. So this is a class action lawsuit filed by the Ohio Public Employees Retirement System and the State Teachers Retirement System and other investors. They say they didn't reveal that Warner Media was in financial disarray when it merged with Discovery last spring. And so the stock ended up plummeting. It sold at $24.00. 78 cents per share when the merger was completed in April, and it fell by more than 50% by September to $11.79%. That's when the lawsuit was filed, and that was a huge loss in these pensions. You know, when all is said and done, I think Yost is going to have to have set the all-time record for recovery by an attorney general. Uh, Before now, probably would have been 
included whoever was in charge for the cigarette lawsuit. But when you add in the opioids and all of these kinds of cases he goes after, he generally comes back with a big chunk of money for Ohio. And I'll bet he comes back with a chunk of money for Ohio yet again. Uh, it's interesting. He must have people on his staff that are looking for things like this to go and get money on behalf of Ohio. Yeah. I mean, $25 million is a lot of money, but you, you don't think about you know, sue, I guess he has, right? This isn't the first time he sued a company over losing money, but like investments are never sure bets, right? They're always a gamble. And yeah, but now, but, now we're trying to act in good hold faith. them responsible. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you have somebody running something that's not acting in good faith, then it does betray the investors. And yeah, that's why he went after First Energy, right? So interesting. It's today in Ohio. In what surely was a nightmare, at least for a little while, for Thanksgiving travelers, Cleveland Hopkins International Airport shut down temporarily on Thanksgiving Eve. There's a bit of a wild story behind why that happened. Layla, what is it? And who is the guy at this the center? This is very wild. And I'd be so mad if I were stuck at the airport while this guy was creating chaos there. So this story begins just after 6 p.m. on Wednesday when a woman called police and reported that she was on Brook Park Road and had gotten out of her car to look for her lost dog <clears throat> when a man jumped in her car and took off with it. And police say the culprit was 26-year-old Isaac Woolley of Cleveland, and they say that minutes after the carjacking, Woolley drove the stolen car through a gate at the airport and then wrecked the car, which took down the main power source to the radar antenna tower. And that meant that the primary radar system, which the FAA uses to monitor civilian and commercial air traffic for Hopkins, was disabled for a while, and several inbound planes to Cleveland were diverted to other airports. A backup radar system had to be activated. It, it was a whole thing. So Woolley is charged with grand theft of a motor vehicle and attempted felonious assault, as well as destruction of an aircraft facility, carjacking, and illegally entering an airport facility, all for this stupid, short joyride. <laughs> you know, when he's sentenced, instead of sending him to jail, they should sentence him to sit for like three years in the terminal. Can you imagine anything worse than Eating that? Eating Cinnabons and just vegging <laughs> right. out in the terminal. terminal. Right. Going to the gross bathrooms. I, they, they, and they diverted flights. Can you imagine? You're oh. at the airport to meet your relative. You got a big Thanksgiving planned and you find out that this Wahoo yeah. had them diverted And the to police said airport. that, that uh, when he was being arrested, he said he wanted to make a statement for those who do not have a voice in society. And then he started chuckling to himself. <laughs> and when they asked him, if, if he thought this was funny, he said he thought some people would think it, would think so. <laughs> I I don't think anybody no. would think this is funny. I think that he's completely wrong. And if he's going to have to stay somewhere, it should be Terminal A. <laughs> That's it for today in Ohio. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. We'll be back Wednesday. We'll hopefully be talking about the OSU president. We're hoping some facts about why she's resigning come into the fore today. 